discussing the general circulation. Of course, the general circulation of the atmosphere is the large scale average picture of motion in the Earth's atmosphere. And what we do when we discuss the general circulation is, excuse me, I think I'm coming down to something. What we do is we separate the general circulation into essentially two parts. The first part we look at is the circulation of the atmosphere over the tropics. And then the other part is at higher latitudes. The part roughly from about 30 degrees north and south of the equator to the poles. And the first thing we do is we look at the components of the general circulation in the tropics because they're actually simpler. And as you recall, the mechanism of the Earth's circulation in the tropics are simple convection cells, what we call the Hadley cells, which is a simple convective overturning of the atmosphere, rising motion over the equator, sinking motion near the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, driven by the uneven heating of the Earth's surface with greater heating, of course, at the equator. And the last time we looked at the Hadley cells and their components, we looked at the rising motion over the equator, over what we call the intertropical convergence zone, where the Earth is heated most strongly. And, of course, the band of low pressure, which conforms to that in a belt around the world. And then we looked at the subtropical high pressure belt, which is roughly at the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, which is under the sinking branch of the Hadley cell. And, of course, you can see the belt of high pressure here and the belt of high pressure in the northern hemisphere and the intertropical convergence zone, which is a belt of low pressure in between. And we also discussed the trade winds, which is the return flow between the subtropical high pressure belts and the intertropical convergence zone. And, of course, famously, that results in the trade winds, which are the east to northeasterly flow of winds from the subtropics back toward the equator, which is what the explorers traveled to the New World in. It was in the flow around this subtropical high pressure zone, the Bermuda High, that took Columbus to the Caribbean. It's a relatively permanent feature of the Earth's atmosphere. The only thing that's not permanent about the features of the Hadley cell, like the convergence zone and the subtropical highs, is their exact location. And we were discussing the last time that because of the fact that the Hadley cell is driven by the uneven heating of the Earth's atmosphere, the latitude of the Hadley cells and the features of the Hadley cell shift north and south with the solar declination. Solar declination being the latitude at which the sun is directly overhead. It's overhead at the equator on the first day of spring and the first day of fall. And, of course, in the winter, it's our winter. It's in the southern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, in other words, it follows the sun. It shifts north and south. Okay. So the last time we were discussing all that, and we had come to the point where we were looking at kind of the wild shape that the convergence zone has. It's not, although it shifts north and south with the solar declination, it's not a straight line. It's at a different latitude over the continents than over the ocean. And we had finished off the last time talking about the monsoon, the Asian monsoon, which is the result of 
the unusual shape of the intertropical conversion zone. And we were looking here at the uh, position of the, the convergence zone in the month of July. And the first thing we noticed in the month of July, it's way north of the equator. But then we look at its position over Asia, and it's way, way north. It's not just north of the equator, it's actually north of the Tropic of Cancer, way north of the Tropic of Cancer. Okay. And the reason is, the position of the continents influence the temperature patterns of the Earth because of the way ocean and continents heat up differently because of the specific heat of water versus the specific heat of land and all of that. So the position of the continents influences the temperature patterns and that influences pressure patterns. Remember the last time we were discussing what a thermal low is, and that when the atmosphere is heated, that causes a low pressure area to develop at the Earth's surface, which is why the low pressure belt of the intertropical convergence zone follows the hottest point on Earth. It follows the solar declination. Well, in the summertime, when the sun's rays are north of the equator, solar declination gets up to the Tropic of Cancer, which is roughly over here, a thermal low develops over southern Asia. Just at the same time that the low pressure belt of the intertropical convergence zone is moving northward. Just at the same time. And what happens then is that the thermal load that develops over Asia joins up with it. It merges with it, and the intertropical convergence zone winds up stringing its way right through the thermal load that sits over southern Asia, because southern Asia gets so much hotter than the ocean surrounding it. And it causes the intertropical convergence zone to take on this wild shape where it kind of strings into the most continental locations it can get to because of the fact that continents heat up so much more strongly than oceans. Now, when this happens, and this intense low-pressure area develops over Asia, which is part of the intertropical convergence zone, there is a lot of convergence. It is a convergence zone, and it becomes very much so over southern Asia. Convergence means the air is coming into it. Air is flowing from high pressure to low pressure. And the air moving into the convergence zone, or the thermal low, what we call the Tibetan low, which anchors over southern Asia, is coming from the oceans that surround the Asian continent. The wind is coming in from moist tropical sea, and it's laden with moisture. This converging air into the intertropical convergence zone, or this section of it, into the thermal low over southern Asia, undergoes all the kind of lifting mechanisms that we have. There's convergence, which forces, forces lift. There's instability, which we'll get to more later in the course, but we know what convection is. Convection is another lifting mechanism that occurs because the ground is so hot and hot air rises. And then, of course, there's the great mountain chains of southern Asia, the Himalayas which run right along the convergence zone. And the combination of this influx of moisture from the surrounding ocean into the thermal low is lifted, and it causes the world's heaviest precipitation. Now, in the popular imagination, the word monsoon means heavy rain. That's only half right. That is what the summer monsoon is. It's only in the summertime that Asia is hotter than the surrounding ocean. In the wintertime, the reverse happens. In the wintertime, if we look at the pressure pattern of the Earth's surface, we see that the intertropical convergence zone Remember, the equator is here, 
it moves way south with the solar declination. This is the position of the convergence zone in the month of January. And as the convergence zone moves south, Asia becomes colder than the surrounding ocean because of the characteristics of land versus ocean. And because the continent becomes colder than the surrounding ocean, the pressure becomes higher than the surrounding ocean. So you flip from a low pressure area over the continent to a high pressure over the continent to what you would call a thermal high. It's caused by the fact that the atmosphere is colder over the continent than the adjacent ocean. And because the pressure is higher over the continent, this develops, it is the world's strongest high pressure zone, which develops every winter. It's called the Siberian high. And Asia exhales, basically. In the summer, it inhales. Air rushes inward from the ocean into the low. In the wintertime, Asia exhales. Air goes from high pressure to low pressure, outward from the Siberian high. And instead of rising motion, you have sinking, sinking motion. Convergence causes uplift. Sinking motion, rather, convergence causes upward lifting in the air. Divergence causes downward motion in the air. The air is spreading outward from the high pressure zone. Air comes down from behind the atmosphere to take its place. Additionally, the air runs downhill from the crest of the Himalayas down to the sea. Sinking motion, the air heats up adiabatically, it dries out. So in the wintertime, we have a situation where you have divergence and sinking motion over the continent, which causes dry weather. So it's a seasonal flip-flop. So we have a definition of the monsoon, which is this. It is the seasonal oscillation, the seasonal flip-flop of pressure and wind over Asia due to changes in solar heating with the season. So there's a winter monsoon and a summer monsoon. So a monsoon doesn't mean rain. If you were asked on a test, what, what is a monsoon? Anyone who writes it means a lot of rain is not going to get any credit because that's not what a monsoon is. It's the, it's, the monsoon is the seasonally reversing wind and pressure pattern over Asia, which causes a lot of rain in the summer and causes very dry weather in the winter. And we had the characteristics of the summer monsoon. This, we went over this last time. This is all on blackboard. Asia heats up. Moisture-laden air sweeps inland from the surrounding ocean. The air is lifted, and the result is the heaviest precipitation on Earth. In the wintertime, we have the opposite happening. The Asian landmass becomes colder, the air sinks, and the result is very, very dry weather. Okay? So, are we clear on what the monsoon is? The monsoon is a seasonal flip-flop. And I, I believe the word monsoon is derived from Arabic, and it means a seasonally reversing wind. And it's only the popular imagination which has given it the, uh, the meaning that it has in our culture, which means a lot of rain. It's because the summer monsoon is such a spectacular thing. And during the summer monsoon, over places like uh, Cambodia and Vietnam and India, they will get 400 inches of rain. They can actually get 10 times the amount of rain during the summer monsoon that we get in a whole year. And all of the rain in those, in those countries, those countries with a monsoonal climate in Southeast Asia, all of the rain they get is during the summer monsoon. It's all during that six months period. It's all from April to November. Ten times as much rain as we get in a whole year in six months. But then in the other six months, it never rains. During the winter monsoon, it never rains. Okay? Very different climate there. Okay? Now, while we're on the topic of monsoons, uh, this is a good point to digress into something of uh, local 
interest. The concept of a thermal low, which is where low pressure develops when the atmosphere is heated, is true everywhere. It's true here. In the summertime, when the land heats up, the pressure does drop due to solar heating to some degree. And where you have a coastline, like we do here, we're on the coastline of Lake Michigan, during the course of a day, the air over Chicago and the dry land heats up quite a bit. Temperatures can easily rise 20 degrees during the course of the day. It can be 70 in the morning and 90 in the afternoon or something like that. But we know that's not true over the water. Temperature of Lake Michigan does not change during the course of the day. Not any significant degree. So if the pressure drops incrementally over the land, because the ground heated up here on dry land, that would not be the case over the water. Because the water doesn't heat up. And the differences in heating during the course of the day along any coastline anywhere will cause what we experience as a sea breeze or a lake breeze which is a close relative of the monsoon. Remember what the monsoon Schematically, the monsoon is a situation where if you have a continent and you have ocean on either side, warm air rises over the continent where the pressure is low and sinks over the water, and you wind up with a flow from high or low pressure, from cool warm. Well, that's actually going to be true along any coastline, and during the course of the day, in the summertime, this happens. Imagine that... Now, I would say that this is a schematic of uh, the Chicago coastline, but being that the land is on the on the right side, we'll say we're on the other side of Lake Michigan, just so we can we don't get confused by the geography. Let's say we're over on the on the uh, east side of Lake Michigan. Here's the Michigan shoreline. Here's Lake Michigan over here. Well, in the morning, we're saying that over the water. Ocean, lake, it makes no difference. It's 60 degrees. The land is also 60 degrees. Well, a couple of hours later, what happens is over the Michigan shoreline, over dry land, it gets warm. Temperature's gone up to 80 degrees. It's by noon. Reasonable. But over the water, they're saying it's gone up to 65. It may not have even gone up at all, actually out over the lake. Well, what does that mean? That means that pressure is going to start to drop here. You're going to start to get a thermal low developing here over the warm land. And the pressure will be relatively higher. It actually won't have changed over the water. So all of a sudden, you're going to have a pressure gradient developing between land and sea. And of course, air always wants to go from high pressure to low pressure. And before you know it, this happens. By 3 o'clock in the afternoon, thermal load develops over the warm land. And you wind up with a pressure gradient. And air is going from high pressure to low pressure, and you have the development of what we call a lake breeze, or a sea breeze, which is, in a very real sense, a miniature monsoon. Because it's a flow of air 
which has been initiated because of the uneven heating of the Earth's surface. That's what a sea breeze is. Now, if we look at a more detailed version of this, here is what happens. And now we're over on the Chicago side. We've got the land on the left. Makes it a little easier. During the day, it gets very warm over the land, and it's very cool over the water. Okay? But we know that there is a relationship between the thickness of atmospheric layers and temperature. Well, that means that where it's warmer over the land, these are pressure levels in the atmosphere, in the bottom 1,000 or 2,000 feet. Notice that the thickness of these atmospheric layers is greater over land because the temperatures are higher. When you have higher thicknesses over here, you wind up with pressure gradient here. Remember, we were talking about how thermal lows develop, and you wind up with a flow from land to sea here, causing the pressure to reduce at the ground, and you wind up with a convection cell. This convection cell is initiated in exactly the same way as the intertropical convergence are. Thicknesses increase over the land because the temperatures increase. You wind up with low pressure developing over the land, high pressure over the water, a flow from water to land, and that's a, that is a sea breeze that happens in the afternoon. At night, the opposite. At night, the land becomes cooler than the water, and the circulation reverses. You get a land breeze. We're less familiar with that because you can't really feel it on land. If you would, if you were out in a boat. At night, air flows from Chicago out to the lake. During the day, air flows from the lake onto the shoreline. It's a miniature monsoon. And it happens along all coastlines, and it's called a sea breeze or a lake breeze. Yeah? If we were to be asked this question on a quiz, could we draw a picture? Yes, absolutely. This is a very difficult thing to explain in words. And it's relatively easy to draw a picture of it, so absolutely. I, pictures are great. Because, you know, describing these things on an exam is, is difficult. Extemporaneous writing is difficult in science because you're explaining things which are difficult to put into words. And if you can convince me that you know what you're talking about in any way, that will that'll be fine. Okay. So sure. Okay. All right, so that was a little bit of a digression. So where have we gone? We discovered started with the general circulation. We divided the general circulation into the tropics and the mid-latitudes. We haven't discussed the mid-latitudes yet. We've discussed the tropics, and the tropical circulation is dominated by the Hadley cells. We discussed the components of the Hadley cell, the convergence zone, the tropical convergence zone, the subtropical highs, and then we discussed what happens in the summertime when the convergence zone moves way north. It joins up with the thermal low over, over Asia. We discussed the monsoon, which is the flip-flop of airflow, airflow from land to sea over Asia due to the heating changes with the season. And then we digressed into a sea breeze, which is a relative of the monsoon. And along any coastline where you have a difference in temperature due to land-sea heating contrasts, you will develop a flow of air from high pressure to low pressure, which is related to the heating of the land. It's essentially working the same way as a monsoon. Okay. The general circulation, which is the overall flow of the atmosphere, <clears throat> section of it we've been discussing over the tropics is relatively simple. It's relatively simple because 
all it really is is two convection cells in either hemisphere, right? The Hadley cells. It's dominated by a simple overturning, a simple convective overturning of the atmosphere with warm air rising and cool air sinking. That's really all it is. Just some of the details may be a little tricky to memorize, but it's just a simple convective overturning. At higher latitudes, when you get up north of the Tropic of Cancer in the northern hemisphere, south of the Tropic of Capricorn in the southern hemisphere, up into the latitudes where we live, it gets a little more complicated. Question is why? Why should the, remember the the purpose of the general circulation, the function of it, was to overcome the heating imbalance of the Earth. It's heated more strongly in the tropics than over the poles. So the function of the motion of the atmosphere is to kind of homogenize things. It's to overcome this imbalance. It's to overcome the deficit of heating at the poles and overcome the surplus of heating at the equator. The question is, why should there be a different mechanism when you get north and south of these latitudes? Like, in other words, here, here's the Earth, here's the equator, here's the Tropic of Cancer, here's the Tropic of Capricorn. You have two Hadley cells here, cross-section here and here. Okay, we understand how the general circulation works to transport heat north and south in this belt. But now the, the, I'm telling you that when you get south and north of that point, it doesn't work. And the atmosphere has to resort to other mechanisms to do its job of transporting heat. And the simple answer to the question as to why, why not? Why can't these convection cells go all the way to the North Pole and then back? We wouldn't have to worry about it. Okay? It would take, it would transport heat the whole distance. The reason that that doesn't exist is because of the Earth's rotation. The reason is the Coriolis effect. Remember the Coriolis effect deflects motion to the right in the northern hemisphere, to the left in the southern hemisphere. And the thing about the Coriolis effect, the Coriolis effect that is important here is the strength of the deflection is a function of latitude. Function of latitude. At the equator itself, the Coriolis effect is zip. It's zero. It reaches a maximum at the North Pole and the South Pole. And when you get north of about 30 degrees here and here, these convection cells break down. They cannot do the job. The convection cells actually can no longer exist north and south of those latitudes because the deflection to the right is too strong. What happens is the air, if you're looking at the top, winds up just shooting off to the right. It can't make it all the way. Okay? So the air just can't get all the way up because it's been deflected to the right. So because the Coriolis effect, the Coriolis effect gets so strong, alternate mechanisms come into play that do the job of the general circulation to redistribute the Earth's heat. And the main feature of the general circulation at higher latitudes here and here are strong upper-level westerly winds, what we call the westerlies. And characteristics of the westerlies that we're going to talk about do the job of redistributing heat. But what happens is when you get north of this and south of this, about 30 degrees, 30 degrees, at upper levels in the atmosphere, there are very strong wavy, very strong wavy flow of winds that blow 
from west to east, both north and south of the equator. And certain characteristics of these westerly winds at high levels are going to do the job of redistributing heat the way these convection cells did, but they do it in a, in a more subtle way. We'll, we'll get to that. But what I first want to do now is to build a picture in your mind of what the general circulation looks like at higher latitudes, and then we'll figure out how it does its job. But the first overall picture of what the atmosphere of the Earth looks like at higher latitudes are very strong westerly winds that blow from west to east around the world, that encircle the globe in the upper troposphere. Now, the explanation for that is based upon the thing which I've been hammering you about for weeks now, and it is the relationship between the thickness of atmospheric layers and temperature. If we were to look at a map of temperatures, here is an analysis of the average temperatures of the Earth's surface in the month of March. And the, the reds represent very warm, and the blue represents cold. And what you see when you look at the temperature pattern of the Earth, you see that when you're in the tropical regions, it's very generally warm. At this point, of course, in the month of March, the solar declination is right over the equator, more or less. It snakes around due to the continents, but the month of March, the solar, de solar declination is here. The tropical convergence zone is here. That's what snakes around the continents. And there's not very much temperature gradient in the tropical regions. Same is true up at very, very high latitudes, way up here near the North Pole and the South Pole. It's all very blue. There's a huge transition in color on this map in the mid-latitudes, basically where we live. This is where you go from the shades of red to the shades of blue. It's all in here. Here it's very much all the same over a large stretch of latitude. Up here it's also cold, generally, with not too much difference in temperature, over large, fairly large stretches of latitude. But in the mid-latitudes, here, is where all the transition occurs. And, and it's really true. I mean, if you think about the way it's been this winter, uh, especially last month, in the month of January, the average temperature in Chicago is about 16 degrees, as it turns out. And the average temperature down in New Orleans was about 65. So in a stretch of 1,000 miles, there was a 50 degree change in temperature. 50 degrees in a thousand miles. Well, if you look at a thousand mile band in the tropics, there's almost no change at all. And if the same is true at very high latitudes, you go a thousand miles from the North, the North Pole, it's the same. You can be on the North Pole or someplace in Upper Siberia it's probably going to be 60 below zero in both places. Won't make any difference. But the difference between Chicago and New Orleans, night and day, 50 degrees. And that's what you see on this map. All the change in temperature is in the mid-latitudes. That being the case, if all the change in temperature is concentrated in the mid-latitudes, that's where the change in the thickness of the atmosphere is going to occur, too. And here's a diagram of that. Here is a cross-section of temperature and thickness in the northern hemisphere. Now, in this diagram, 
right in the middle here is the North Pole. What I'm doing here is I'm flattening out the ground. Here's the equator on this side. Here's the equator on this side. I flattened out the Earth so that the North Pole is in the middle. Well, just as on the temperature map before, the dark blues, the dark area, is cold. Yellow is warm. Well, notice that where it's cold, upper-level pressure surfaces dip way down. The surface of the Earth, we're saying that the pressure is all roughly 1,000 millibars. And as you go up to 900 millibars, 800, 700, you start to notice that they're buckled upward where the atmosphere is warm on this side and on this side, and they are sunken in in the middle. The reason is the separation between pressure surfaces or the thickness of the intervening atmospheric layers is less where the atmosphere is cold. Because of that, because of the relationship of temperature and thickness, when you get to the mid and upper troposphere, there is a deep, low pressure center where the atmosphere is coldest over the North Pole. And the same is true over the South Pole. Now, on your quiz last time, I mean, we've known about this for a few weeks in this course, I asked you a question or something like uh, the, what was the question? It was over the equator, the thickness of the bottom 500 millibars of the atmosphere, which is depicted here, is usually, the answer was, greater than over the poles. The thickness of the bottom 500 millibars is much greater than it is over the North Pole. We've known why that would be for weeks now. The reason is, over the equator, the atmosphere is warm, and over the North Pole, the atmosphere is cold. And that fact causes a deep, low-pressure area to be centered over the poles, because the atmosphere is cold. Now, because of the Coriolis effect, that causes the air to be deflected to the right. Now, we know that causes the winds in the upper troposphere and the free atmosphere to blow parallel to the height contours with low pressure on the left. That was another question on your quiz. If that's true, and there is a deep low centered up here, over the North Pole, where the atmosphere is cold, it's going to cause the winds to blow from west to east around the world. Think about it. If the pressure is lowest over the North Pole, because the thicknesses are lowest over the North Pole, makes the height lowest over the North Pole, gives you a low centered over the North Pole, the Coriolis effect is going to cause air to run parallel to the height contours around that with low pressure on its left side. It's going to make the winds blow from west to east around the world. It's a direct result of two things. It's a result of the fact that it is coldest over the North Pole, and the Coriolis effect, Coriolis effect causes air to blow parallel to the height contours with lower pressure, lower heights on the left side. Now, on this diagram, you see these two marks over here? Okay, these, imagine that this is an arrow coming toward you. And this is an arrow going into the picture. 
thrust hatch means an arrow going into the frame. This is the point of an arrow coming at you. You're looking at a cross-section of the atmosphere over the North Pole. It means air is circulating around this lobe, coming at you over here, going into the frame over here. These are upper-level westerly winds circling around <coughs> this polar lobe. We call the low-pressure system that sits over the top of the world at high altitudes the polar vortex. It's the gigantic low-pressure center at the top of the atmosphere that sits over the North Pole and the South Pole. And it is the hub of the wheel of the westerlies that encircle the globe. <coughs> now, here is a page of notes that puts this together. The cause of the winds of the upper troposphere, the cost of the equator to pole temperature gradient, there's an equator to pole thickness gradient. Now, all right, before you continue writing, here again is the equator to pole temperature gradient, which causes an equator to pole thickness gradient. Low thicknesses up here cause low heights, high temperatures, high thicknesses, high heights. Okay? So because of that gradient, there is an equator to pole thickness gradient. The poleward decrease in thickness results in a poleward decrease in the height of pressure surfaces in the upper troposphere. The resulting pressure gradient force in combination with Coriolis force causes strong westerly winds to encircle, encircle the globe. sits over the North Pole. Same thing in the Southern Hemisphere. Westerly. You would say, well, wait, doesn't the Coriolis force make things go to the left? It does. Not only is it backwards, it's also upside down. So it winds up in Westerlies again. Now, in between, from roughly 20 degrees north to 20 degrees south, there are easterlies. The reason for that, the reason there are easterlies in between, is that notice that in the tropics here, there is very little temperature gradient. So there is very little thickness gradient. And what happens is the sudden, now you're going to have to. Think back to what we were talking about. When we spoke about the Hadley cells and the tropical circulation, we spoke of the belt at length of high pressure, which encircles the globe in the subtropics at the downward branch of the Hadley cell, at the Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn. Well, those high, because of the fact that there is no thickness gradient in the tropics, those pressure systems at the surface extend all the way up to the top of the atmosphere. 
and actually result in a band of easterlies in the equatorial zone. So what you wind up with is an overall flow pattern of upper-level winds, which is characterized by westerlies in the mid and high latitudes of both hemispheres and a band of tropical easterlies in between. This is the reason why in our latitude belt, weather systems move from west to east. Weather systems on the weather map move from west to east. California's weather two days ago is our weather today. Our weather today is New York's weather tomorrow. In the tropics, that's not true. When you go south of the latitude of Florida, weather moves the other way. And at the end of the term, we'll hopefully briefly have a chance to look at hurricanes. They move the other way. Hurricanes develop not far from the equator. Very often, Atlantic hurricanes develop off the coast of Africa, and they move from the coast of Africa westward across the Atlantic Ocean towards the United States. It's because they are down in the belt of tropical easterlies. And ultimately what happens is they come near the United States and make a U-turn and then go back out to sea in the North Atlantic from west to east. But initially, as they're coming up out of the tropics, they move from east to west because they originate far south near the equator in the tropical easterlies. And this is basically a roadmap for the weather system. West to east here, east to west in the tropics. Okay, now, the point of this is the main feature, we're talking about the general circulation, which is the overall circulation of the atmosphere. We've identified in the tropics, you have the Hadley cells, these convective cells. Additionally, we've now learned at high levels of the atmosphere, superimposed upon the Hadley cells, we have a movement of the wind in the tropics from east to west. And then at higher latitudes where we live, the winds blow from west to east. Okay, so that's the general picture of the flow of the atmosphere in the mid and high latitudes is a westerly wind at high levels and a uh, resulting west-to-east movement of weather systems in the mid and high latitudes. Let's get into some of the details now. One detail of this is that embedded, I look, not super, embedded in this overall westerly flow of wind at high altitudes in the mid-latitudes, there are bands. There are bands, which would be roughly the thickness of these lines, these arrows, of very strong winds. Rivers of air, long bands of strong winds, which are embedded in the overall westerly flow. They're called jet streams. Jet streams are narrow bands of very strong wind embedded in the upper-level flow. Jet streams in the westerlies correspond to bands of very strong high gradients, which correspond to very strong temperature gradients. Why would that be? Can, who can be brave here and come up with a reason based upon the foregoing discussion? Why would these rivers of air, these narrow bands of very strong wind, be embedded in the upper level westerlies where there are very strong temperature gradients? 
there's no land, there's no um, friction at all or anything, so they well, allow for Well, but that's true everywhere. I mean, once you get up into the upper troposphere, there's no, you're up in the free atmosphere, there's no friction. But what ha what what about the temperature gradients? Yes, but what I have to do is how we were talking about before, at tall heights, that more air has to get through a smaller space. Well, that's true when air goes over a mountain range. Okay. Uh, air gets, I mean, w one reason for strong winds at high altitude is when you have a mountain. If here's a mountain here, here's the top of the atmosphere. A lot of air has to get through a very narrow opening. That causes strong winds on a mountaintop. But that's not the reason. Say here that jet streams in the westerlies occur in the free atmosphere when there are strong, what is the connection between high gradients? And, remember, strong winds <coughs> occur where the isobars or the height lines, however you want to look at it, are close together. Okay. What did that have to do with temperature gradients in the upper, upper levels? See, this is the key. At upper levels in the atmosphere, at upper levels in the atmosphere, the pressure gradients are entirely due to the temperature of the atmosphere below. Remember, the upper level weather map is basically a topographic chart. Remember that? It's a topographic chart of the atmosphere, and the topography of an upper level pressure surface has to do with the thickness of the under of the pressure of the, the atmospheric layers beneath that. They are thick where the atmosphere is warm, and they're not very thick where the atmosphere is cold. So if you are in a region where the atmospheric temperature goes from cold to warm, the atmosphere goes from thick to thin, which is a slope. And a slope in the topography of a pressure level is an area where there's a strong pressure gradient. And strong pressure gradients are related to wind. Look at this map. Here is, this is a map of, this is the weather map at 300 millibars, which is roughly 30,000 feet, which was back in October. And these black lines, remember in this course we build, when you, we cover a topic, you've got to remember what we covered, because everything we do is built upon what we did before. Okay, and now you're looking at this map, and you're looking at high contours, and you're saying, what on earth is that? These are contours of the 300 millibar pressure surface, okay, and where the lines are close together, you have a strong height gradient, which is a strong pressure gradient, and the blue here represents the jet stream. This map is showing us wind speed. The dark blue color represents winds of 110 to 130 miles per hour. The Purple is 150 miles per hour. It's where you have the height contours packed close together. The height contours of the 300 millibar pressure surface are packed close together where there's a steep slope in that pressure surface. And you have a steep slope where there is a strong contrast in temperature because the atmosphere is depressed here because it's cold, and it's warm here. Look at this map. Here's, on the same day, a temperature analysis. Showed that on that day, it was very cold over western Canada, and it was warm over the east, and there was a temperature gradient Remember what gradients are. That's a, the change of anything per unit distance. A temperature gradient is the change in temperature per unit, dis, per unit distance. 
degrees per kilometer, degrees per mile. A strong zone of temperature contrast here, where it go from blue and green to yellow. You look at the weather map in the upper troposphere, it corresponds where there's a strong temperature gradient. The winds of the upper troposphere are very strong. Again, these bands of strong winds, they correspond to bands of strong height gradients. Well, height gradients is where the high contours are close together, which occur where temperature gradients are strongest. That height gradient here is at 30,000 feet over where there is a strong temperature gradient. It's where there's a transition in the thickness of the atmosphere. Okay. Then finally, I make the statement that the jet streams are therefore associated with fronts. Well, when we were talking about lifting mechanisms, I briefly introduced you to the idea of a front. A front is the leading edge of an air mass, which is a body of air with more or less uniform temperature characteristics. There are cold air masses and there are warm air masses. And the dividing line between them are called fronts. Their leading edge is called the front. Then where you have the leading edge of an air mass, you have a zone of sharp temperature contrast, which is what you're actually seeing here. This is a zone of temperature contrast, which is related to the position of the jet stream at high level. And in fact, on the weather map, if you look, there is a front in that location, which represents the leading edge here, from here around to here, of very cold air coming out of Canada. The leading edge of it is here, and the temperature gradient shows that. It's cold back here behind it. This is a cold air mass. There's a warm air mass around it. And that zone of transition corresponds to the front, and all of that is corresponding to the position of the jet stream at high levels in the atmosphere. It's all related. Okay, so where are we? We'll continue with this the next time, because I want to get to the quiz, but where have we gone? After discussing the general circulation of the tropics, which was dominated by the convectively overturning Hadley cells, we moved on to discussing the general circulation at higher latitudes, which is everything from the tropics forward. <coughs> And the first thing we know about that is that the flow of the Earth's atmosphere is from west to east at the higher latitudes. And it's from west to east because of the temperature, the fact that temperatures get colder as you move toward the pole. That, combined with the Coriolis effect, causes the winds to go from west to east around the north, and around the southern pole. Okay? That was the basics. Westerlies at high level, in the mid and high latitudes. Now we're looking at the first detail. The first detail is the existence of bands of very concentrated wind within, embedded within the westerlies, which are called the jet streams. And jet streams are related to the position of temperature gradients and fronts on the weather map. Okay, that's the first detail. The next time, we're going to go on to the next detail and start to understand how these details of the westerlies allow the circulation at these latitudes to do their job of transporting heat. Because remember, the function of the general circulation at all latitudes is to transport heat and overcome the heating imbalance. Okay. All right. Uh, let's move on to the quiz.
And by the way, uh, 